This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I am very excited for today's episode, as I am all of our episodes, but particularly today, because I love stepping out of my comfort zone to learn something new. And this particular topic area is one that I feel like I should know better than I do. And so I'm pretty excited to have an in-depth discussion and kind of learn a little bit more and put the discourse out into the public forum. Mm-hmm. But today I have with me Joe De La Pena, and Joe is a former professor of law at Villanova University Charles Widger School of Law, and he's currently a visiting professor all around the world, but particularly right now he is the visiting professor of law at Beijing University with their School of Transnational Law. And I have Joe here today to talk about the elusive riparian rights doctrine. (laughs) So Joe, for our listeners, would you kind of give just a little introduction to kind of who you are and kind of what attracted you to teaching law? Uh, I I wanted to um, go into international law when I was a law student, but this was at a time 55 years ago when uh, many law schools, including one I went to, didn't even have a course called international law. So I decided I would go to uh, get an LLM in international law at George Washington University after I graduated from law school. And George Washington gave me a fellowship whereby I would teach legal writing, the dreaded legal writing course, uh, in exchange for tuition and a, a modest salary. So that's what I did. And then I went into law practice and found that I enjoyed even legal writing teaching better than I enjoyed uh, being at the lowest level of a law practice. So I said, oh, maybe I'll give teaching a try. And the school that hired me wanted someone to teach water law. And I said, you know, sure, I haven't I didn't have a course on it, but I can learn it and I'll, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you want the job? Right, you take it. So I started teaching out west in uh, Willamette University in uh, Salem, Oregon for three years. And then I moved back east. And of course, uh, back east, I, I found water law fascinating. But back east, water law is altogether different from what you find in the west. And so I undertook to study and uh, teach Eastern water law. And for many decades, actually, I was the only one who really taught Eastern water law. Even even people like Dan Tarlock or Bill Abrams, who taught in Eastern schools, basically taught appropriative rights. So I've been working on water law now for about 51 years altogether, and most of that in the East east of the United States. And by the way, if you're wondering how I define east, um, the traditional definition is east of the 100th meridian, but not very many people carry a map in their head where they can say where the 100th meridian is. So I like to say, draw an imaginary line up and down through Kansas City. Now that's actually not quite out to the 100th meridian, but it's close. And states to the east of that basically are in the riparian tradition. States to the west of that are basically in the appropriative rights tradition, although uh, some of them recognize both kinds of rights in the West. 
And Hawaii, which you might think of as in the farther west, in this context is really something you should go to from the east because it's riparian and not appropriation. I haven't actually thought about grouping Hawaii on the map like that, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> East Coast claims. <laughs> and the, the approaches are, are very different. Now, I won't say much about appropriation because I assume most of your listeners and certainly you know that system very well, maybe better than I do. I think that most of our listeners will have a pretty good understanding of the prior appropriation doctrine. Yeah, yeah. For the riparian rights, I think it will be very new to most folks. I mean, we do actually have a fair amount of East Coast listeners, but most of our listeners are, are kind of along the, the um, Rocky yeah. Mountain range. So, yeah, please go ahead. Give us an overview well, of kind of what the riparian rights doctrine well, is. Well, to be, begin with, it's not one system of law. It's two. And they're very different from each other. One is called riparian rights or traditional riparian rights or common law riparian rights, however you want to phrase it. And the other is called regulated riparianism, which is uh, altogether different. Traditional riparian rights, which originated uh, actually in the East Coast of the United States and that, 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 that legal theory. So common, often said, brought with the common law from England. But if you dig into the history, you'll find that the riparian rights theory originated in the United States was carried back to England. For, we exported it to England? Yes, absolutely. Um, the earliest cases in the common law world that I found was in New Jersey in 1797. The English at the time had a, a view of uh, one had rights to use water by royal grant and not by any sort of general common law idea, but as I, we corrupted them. <laughs> our thinking. <laughs> but that took uh, about 50 years after it began in the United States. The, the early cases on riparian rights tended to talk about protecting the natural flow of a river or, or stream or a lake. The, the, uh, and of course, this basically focuses on surface water. But it's very hard to find a case where they actually made a decision on that basis. They talk about the right to use and enjoy water as being a natural attribute of the land over which or along which uh, a water body flows or lies. But when push came to shove, the courts, even in the early 19th century, did not actually apply a natural flow theory. They applied what came to be called the reasonable use theory. Real quickly, Joe, just break down what the natural flow theory gave to an owner of the water. Well, the courts did not develop very much about what it meant. They made a broad general statement that each landowner was entitled to have the water that naturally comes down to his or her land come down in its natural condition without material change in either quality or quantity. Uh, they said that, but it's very hard to find a case where they actually applied that rule. Instead, Dead, what they applied uh, that was a rule called reasonable use. Because if you think about it, you could not, if you think about the natural flow theory, no one could make a, a consumptive use of the water. Uh, they made an exception for what were called domestic uses, that is, use for immediate human survival consumption. And that was it uh, in words. But when they actually had a dispute where, where preserving the natural flow would hurt the upper riparian, they quickly abandoned that. And as I say, these go back 1820 already, where the courts quickly abandoned that and said, well, what, what's really riparian rights is all about is that each riparian landowner and riparian, the word riparian, by the way, 
comes from the Latin word repo, which means bank, bank of a stream. The technical word for rights on a lake is called littoral, which comes from the Latin word litus, which means shore. And so riparian right is, it was said, is a natural attribute of the land, and each owner of riparian land had a natural right to use the water that naturally came to his property. But the question becomes, what if two or more riparians are making uses and they are incompatible with each other? Yeah, so they get it as an indice of ownership, right? Is yeah, of owning was, the land. It was an incident of the ownership of land. It was an incorporeal hereditament, if you want to know the technical term they used back in those days. I haven't seen that word in an actual case in about 100 years. But <laughs> back in the 19th century, they still use words like that. That came as an incident of owning land. But the problem is, you see, the easiest case... Uh, if you have two water wheels, and water wheels was a very common form of power back in the 1800, 1820 era, uh, before the widespread use of steam, and you have two water wheels, it was very easy to say natural flow because first the water flows over your water wheel and it goes downstream and flows over the next water wheel and you don't really interfere with each other as long as you don't diminish the, the quantity. But you have two farmers that want to irrigate and it's an extremely dry time. And so they're both going to want to irrigate and take a lot of water out of, let's say, a modest stream, not very big stream. Well, if one takes the water out, there's no water and not enough water for the other. Who gets to use the water? Uh, You say only the last one before it reaches the sea, because that's where the natural flow theory would lead you. Well, no, that's what the courts did. Even as early as 1820, courts are saying, no, no, no. Each one has a right to make a reasonable use of the water. And so it came to be called the reasonable use theory. But how do you decide what's a reasonable use? Well, that was up to the judge. And so just for a recap, for those who are newer to this discussion. So basically, you know, back in the East Coast, water was abundant. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time, which is in contrast to everything on the west of the 100th meridian. Yeah. Right. And so most of the rights originally were for items like power wheels or grist mills or mills, uses of water that didn't physically consume the water. So it's kind of like the power of water. So we needed to develop the doctrine that basically address those uses, but also how, how we're going to address consumptive uses, like putting up your irrigation or, you know, beer or something where the water is actually phys- physically used. That's right. Uh, the growing cities needed drinking water, yeah. and that tended to take it out of the stream. And although the water that's used for public water supply in the cities eventually mostly returns Somewhere, it doesn't necessarily turn, return to the same stream, or it may return in a polluted, uh, back in those days before you had relatively effective environmental law, maybe highly polluted or any terms, all kinds of reasons why the growth of cities meant that natural flow theory wouldn't work. But the earliest cases involved competing consumptive uses. And right from the beginning, the court said, well, each riparian has an equal right of access to the river, and each is entitled to a reasonable use of the river. And what does that mean? And it was up to the judge to decide, you see. And the theory was not that there was some absolute sense of what is a reasonable use. Obviously, you could hypothecate 
a highly unreasonable use that a court might flat out say, unreasonable, can do it. Um, One of the classic cases in this regard came from California in the 1960s, where a company that was operating a gravel pit was depending on the uh, river to carry gravel down from upstream. And it insisted that all the riparians between the place where the gravel was coming from and where his gravel pit was simply had to not interfere with the river because if the water flow of water is reduced, uh, it couldn't carry the gravel. And the court said that's just not a reasonable use of the water under the circumstances. Now, this is California where water is on the short supply to begin with. And so you can find some cases where it is flat out unreasonable what you might say in the abstract. But generally speaking, especially in the East, these were disputes between two or more users who were more or less making the similar uses. You couldn't say this, or at least they were making uses that in the abstract were both reasonable. So you couldn't pick it on that basis. You couldn't say this use is reasonable and this other use is unreasonable. Stop it, you see. And so the question became, how do you allocate the water? What is a reasonable share for this party or that party? Now, if they are making the same uses, and you'll see this written a lot, that a riparian owner is entitled pro rata shares. If they're all making similar uses. You have have a river with a bunch of mills. You know, you have a river with a bunch of farmers. And, Mm -hmm. And by the way, you should know that irrigation is increasingly common in the it's not on the scale you have in the West, but it's very common. You drive around, let's say Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Ohio, you know, go, go on in any of the Eastern states in the rural areas, you will see spray irrigation. That is sprinklers, large sprinklers, sprinkling water on the fields. Very, very common. So let's say you have two, just keep the, the, the uh, imagery simple. Two farmers both want to draw water out of a water, common water source, but if one takes as much water as she wants, there won't be enough water for the other farmer. And in that case, it's relatively easy solution for the judge who's asked to, uh, to decide the dispute as to who is making a reasonable use to say pro rata shares. Typically- Just real quickly, Joe, would you kind of explain what a pro rata share? It's pretty, it's it's pretty well, obvious, uh, yeah. but for those of who are maybe newer to the conversation, like just when you say pro rata, what does that mean? Well, you have to pick a common denominator. And, mm-hmm. and if you're talking about two farmers, similar crops, or at least no, no crop that has some special priority, which in most of the time you're not going to have in a case, typically the court will say, all right, how many acres does farmer A have? How many acres does farmer B have? How much water can reasonably be taken out of the water source? And uh, what's important there is you just mentioned that there are two farmers on the creek, but potentially there could be four or six or whatever. And so your water rights are for that matter, you're talking about the Ohio River. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's right. But typically the judge in the riparian rights litigation only considers the parties in front of the judge. Oh, okay. And that's usually two people. It's usually not a dozen or or 100 or 1,000. It could, in theory, be, but you almost never see, for example, a class action suit. You don't have anything analogous to the general adjudication you have in the West. You see, it's done on a case-by-case basis. So then the judge says, well, this is the amount of, you got to leave a certain amount in the river for various reasons, navigation, for example, or the fish need water and so on. So you you figure out what is the reasonable amount that could be taken out by these farmers 
at this more or less this common point, and then you allocate it on a per acre basis. The bigger farm gets the bigger share. You know, it's a pro rata in proportion to whatever is the common denominator you're using to allocate the water. And you see a few cases decided like that, but not very many. So when you see someone write, as they often do, that in riparian rights, water is divided pro rata, that's misleading because that's not what most of the disputes, how most of the disputes that end up uh, being litigated up to the state Supreme Court are. Because a pro rata distribution is that's a, that's a relatively easy solution. But what if the uses are very, very different? And there's no possible common denominator. Now, the, the case that I like to talk about in this regard is called Harris versus Brooks. I teach a, this one. Yay. Teach this one. Good. That, that was decided in Arkansas in 1955. Now, you've got two competing users. I mean, no, there are actually five or six landowners who share the bed of the lake, but only two that are in the court. And that's the only two the court talks about. The only two the court considers. Uh, one is a rice farmer. Now, he's been growing rice on his land for roughly 20 years before this drought hits. Now, rice is a swamp grass. It needs to be flooded during most of its growing cycle. Uh, and in the east, in when you have a, what were then considered normal rain patterns, rain patterns have been changing the last couple of decades. But in, in the 1950s, what was considered a normal rain pattern no irrigation was necessary. All the farmer had to do was catch the rain and you keep heavy enough to keep the fields flooded. But in dry years, the farmer would pump water out of this lake, part of which was on his property, this little horseshoe lake. Uh, and in a normal dry year, he could pump and keep his fields flooded till it was time to drain them. Uh, but now they have an intense drought. And so he has to pump heavily from the lake to keep his fields flooded. Turns out that very year before the drought began, a new business, an entrepreneur who had leased uh, a different tract of land that also included part of the lake, had started a, a, a boat business, a boat, what I call a boat livery. He built a little store, if you want to call it that, by the lake shore, bought some small boats. He sold fishing gear. He sold uh, food and drinks. He sold perhaps gas and put in a gas pump or two for people who need gasoline. And people could bring their own boat and pay a fee to launch from his boat ramp, or they could rent a boat from him. And this so is he basically our, created a recreational use on the same lake as that, the that irrigator. Is correct. That yeah. is correct. Now, luck would have it. This boat livery started business just before one of the most severe droughts in Arkansas history. And the next thing you know, the farmer is pumping water like mad to keep his rice flooded. He's already planted the rice. So if he doesn't flood it, it's a lost crop. And the lake level is dropping. The boat livery owner's dock and boat ramp are high and dry. He's got no customers. And as he complains in, to the court, the fish have stopped biting. Well, the fish are, you know, the fish are barely hanging on in the, in the lake. Now, there's no way you can say pro rata share in this case, if you think about it. Just no way you can do that. What's the common denominator? How, what in proportion to what? How do you compare stocks of rice with fish or with boat customers? You don't. And so the court ultimately has to decide who gets the water and who loses. 
who in effect loses his business. Now, in this case, the court decides. Now, the court says the way the criterion is to decide according to the shopping list of factors. But what it comes down to is the relative social value, that is the value to society, of keeping the one use going or the other use. And the court decides, without telling you very clearly why, that the boat livery should get the water, orders the farmer to stop pumping, which means two things to the farmer. Well, it means three things. Let's go take it one at a time. First, this year's rice crop is a loss. Now, the only reason that didn't happen is because it took two years to reach the Supreme Court. And so the farmer could actually adjust. But if it was decided immediately, this year's rice crop is a loss. Secondly, next year, I better not plant rice because I don't know whether it's going to rain or not. The he basically had to change a bunch of his operations to account for the fact that his water right is going to be an uncertain water right. That's right. And he, he well, his water need from the lake is going to be an uncertain need. And, and, and its chances are pretty good. He's not going to be, be able to take the water he needs from the lake. The third point I want to point out is, is there is a third possibility for the farmer. If, if it's worth it to him financially, presumably he's growing rice because it's the most profitable crop, presumably. I mean, it doesn't actually say that in the case. And the next most profitable cop, crop, whatever it might be, might pay him just to buy the boat livery, put that guy out of business. You see, that's the third possibility the farmer has to consider. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't know what any of that happened, which, which, what, which the farmer did. But the message was rice is a risky crop in, in Arkansas, unless the next judge to hear the case decides that growing rice is more reasonable than providing recreational opportunities in central Arkansas. You see, the, the judge is making a choice, and, in the, and, and at least in theory, and they say this in the case, but they don't tell you why the decision goes this way. The judge is deciding, and they don't quite use the phrasing I'm using, but this is what it boils down to, that the, the providing recreational opportunities is more important to Arkansas society than growing rice. Now, They're going to make more money renting boats than eating selling rice. Well, they don't quite say that either. I mean, we're not told <laughs> that. It may be true, but if that's true, what that implies is if the price, price of rice goes up, then next mm-hmm. year might be more reasonable to grow rice. Or if like the corn crop went down or something. Yeah. If, if it's all about economic value, which it might be, although we're not told enough in the case to know that, then next year, rice might be reasonable use and the bill delivery might not. And that's one of the important things to keep in mind. You're absolutely right. The, 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 what right you have is uncertain, first of all, because who began first doesn't count under riparian rights. That's long and the short of it. This is not a time priority system at all. Which is the um, key distinction with the prior appropriation doctrine. That's right. That's what you think about out west. Who started first? And then you have to, you know, can you document that? Who, who has the records and so on? But that's in the west. In the east, time never counted. And because time didn't count, people didn't keep the records. And so it impo- would be impossible if you, if you wanted to, by fiat, judicial fiat, switch to prior appropriation. Who started first? You don't have the records to prove it. And the result is your right is highly uncertain under riparian rights. What exactly are you allowed to use? Well, it's whatever judge decides, if it comes to that, if it comes to a court dispute, 
You can't negotiate a solution with your neighbors. It's whatever a judge decides, and you can't predict that. Which to me seems like such an uncertain foundation for a legal doctrine, because it, you know, it basically throws any uncertainty into the court system, which is like expensive, which is you know uncertain in of itself, which is just a very difficult way to make any kind of business decisions on. And so in my mind, when I teach this to the students, I say, I have no idea how this works in reality. <laughs> well, how, how it works in reality is most people are not going to go to court. Yeah. You know, in which case, as the saying goes, the biggest pump wins. You hmm. say whoever, whoever can pump the water fastest and uh, with the most force is going to get it. However, how it really worked in reality for the first 150 years, let's say, of this system was there wasn't that there weren't that many disputes because water was plentiful. We had much more rain in the east than you have in the west. Um, Philadelphia has, uh, where I live, has on the average 45 inches of rain a year, which is, I think, double what you get in Dallas and I some parts of the west at 10 times what you get. And so most of the time, farmers didn't irrigate in the heat. You did, have, you did have some disputes involving cities. As cities grew, they began to take water out of the source streams in large amounts. You know, most of the water that's used for municipal consumption in any city in the world ends up going back somewhere to a water source. That is, you, 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 you drink water, it doesn't stay in your body forever. You cook with water, you wash with water, you wash clothes with water, you wash the floor with water. If you're in a business, you use electricity, which uses a lot of water to generate it. One way or another, it goes back. The question is, it doesn't go back necessarily to the same source. It, before the Clean Water Act in 1972, anyway, if it did go back to the same source, it was often highly polluted. And so cities, in a number of cases in the early years, had to deal with cities who were taking large amounts of water. And again, a lot of uh, small users didn't feel that they could go to court uh, against the city because cities always have lots of resources. But in the West, in the East, the... the uh, Again, very different from the West. In the East, the courts mostly, there are a couple of states where this is not true, but in almost all of the states, took the view the city is not a riparian. So even would they have to condemn land to be a riparian? I mean, if they yeah, were- well, even if they, own, they are riparian to the extent that the city itself owns land that touches the water source. Remember, the whole idea is you got to actually be contiguous. You have to touch the water source. And so to the extent, you know, you have a park, you know, an office building belongs to the city that touches the 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 land touches the river. Uh, the city is riparian, and for those needs, it can claim riparian rights. But for blocks and blocks and blocks of houses and shops and factories, none of which touch the river, uh -huh. cannot claim riparian rights. And uh, the idea being that a city or any non-riparian has no right to use the water at all. Period. So then how did the cities get there? I mean, like, so then what, well, like, what is the right that attaches to a city's water in the East? All right. They would have to buy the right to use water from the people who would be affected by the city's use. They'd have to pay people off in advance. They'd either so, condemn their land or condemn their water rights or simply buy a waiver. Mm -hmm. Now, since the farmer's mostly depending on rainfall anyway, the farmer's not going to object, Right. A smaller mm -hmm. user who might want to make a consumptive use that 
where rainfall would not be adequate might have to be bought off. And we have those cases turning up in the first 100, 150 years of riparian rights. So does that basically then, because I mean, you know, we have watershed protections here in Utah for our, for Salt Lake mm-hmm. City watershed up in the Cottonwood Canyon. Most of our water comes from snow melt. Mm-hmm. And so that actually own the canyons that the Forest Service does, but we have by mm-hmm. statute extraterritorial jurisdiction. You know, in, in teaching them with this and not being an East Coaster, you know, I have noted that it seems like a large number of the, the big cities on the East Coast also have huge watershed portfolios. So, I mean, they own a ton of land or protections, you know, in their actual watershed. So is that basically not just for watershed protection for, you know, quality purposes, but also like quantity purposes? Like they own those watersheds to acquire the actual water rights to feed people? They, they certainly acquire the right to take the water. Now, now a lot of states have in, in the East have enacted statutes authorizing their larger cities anyway to use a particular river as a water source. But those statutes have been interpreted by the courts pretty uniformly as not terminating the property rights of the riparian landowners. So they still have to buy out any objections from the riparian landowners. It puts the burden on the city of paying off people who might object to their taking the water. And that, that's how we deal with the problem of the cities under the reasonable use theory. Because if you think, if you were to treat, and there, Ohio is one, for example, it says cities are riparian. As to all of the residents, well, in that case, the city's always going to take all the water and not pay anybody anything because the judge is not going to say to the city, stop being a city. You can't take the water. (laughs) And so, but most of the states did not go that road. They they went the way I said. The city wants to use the water. They've got to reach, uh, they've got to buy out or condemn eminent domain, any water rights that they might interfere with. You know, that becomes an added expense. In, In the West, at least in the old days, when you still have a fair amount of unappropriated water in the West, the city could just appropriate new water. And as long as they didn't have too late a priority date, that was fine. But you couldn't do that in the East because that's not how riparian rights works. Who took the water first doesn't matter in the East. And the courts were all usually pretty vague about exactly why the judges did thought this lease was more reasonable than that. Now, often, as in Harris versus Brooks, the winner gets all of it, and the loser gets essentially nothing. More often, the winner gets as much as the winner needs, but there's something left for the loser. Uh, But if you read Harris versus Brooks, it's very clear. If the rice farmer is allowed to pump without limit, there's nothing left for the boat livery. And vice versa, if you're going to leave the water in the lake for the benefit of the boat livery, there's nothing left for the farmer when there's a severe drought. Now, Two things happen to change this system. Uh, One, continuing uh, both population growth and economic growth. That is, uh, as as more factories get built, new kinds of factories get built and so on, uh, more economic activity, you need more water. And as more people- So we're moving from kind of the era of passive grist mills and passive, you know, uh, water wheels to industrial uses of our rivers and our waters where the actual industry is going to be consuming the water more. That is correct. But, you know, all this began fairly early. By itself, it wasn't enough to change the legal system. Mm -hmm. I think industrial revolution style. That's right. It began fairly early in the East, but it wasn't enough to change the legal system. Well, uh, you had to add another variable, which was changing rainfall patterns, what we call, oh. I call climate disruption. 
At the same time, the demand for water is growing exponentially. Supply of water is decreasing. And that uh, meant enormous pressure on the legal system. It just didn't work. And more and more states recognized that it didn't work. One of the first to take to move in this direction was Maryland way back in 1933. But other states moved more recently. The first big wave was in the late 50s and early 60s. And if you were to go back and read the hydrographs for that uh, period of time, you would find that the East Coast had what was then the worst drought, and it lasted about seven or eight years mm-hmm. uh, in, in the recorded history, which means back to when European settlement began. This is why one of the reasons why in New York, they don't automatically put a glass of water on your table when you go into a restaurant. You have to ask for it because they actually adopted a regulation during this drought requiring that because water had become so scarce. And a great deal of litigation arose under riparian rights in the East Coast states uh, during this extended drought. And then state legislatures uh, stepped in. The kinds of changes I'm going to discuss are not easy to, to bring about, except in a prolonged crisis like that. And so what we're talking about now is we're moving from kind of the general concept of, of having ample enough water to basically implement a reasonable use doctrine for riparian rights, which is a weighing mm-hmm. of uses between users, to something more structured due to industrial growth and drought. Because there's that, just that less is water to go about. Okay. Recurring and extended drought. And these recurring and extended droughts hit different parts of the East uh, repeatedly over the last 60 odd years. And each time it happens, a block of states in that particular region abandoned traditional riparian rights. So you have it happening in the, mostly in the 1960s and in, in most, but not all, of the middle Atlantic states and uh, the Northeast up to New England. Sm- most, but not all of New England. And then you have in the Southeast and the, uh, from Arkansas across to the Carolinas and Virginia in the 90s, basically, 80s and 90s, because you had extended droughts, recurring extended droughts across that region. And you had it happening in the upper Midwest, uh, again, in the the 60s and 70s. Uh, You had it happen in Hawaii in the 1980s, which Hawaii, by the way, riparian rights. Hawaiian water law is very complicated because you have a live tradition of traditional water rights there, too, along with riparian rights. They've all been uh, overlain, as is true in uh, more than half of the eastern states, about 19 or 20 out of the 33 eastern states, uh, have, followed, have adopted a system that I, I named uh, regulated riparianism. Now you can think of, I'll leave this aside, appropriative rights as a kind of private property system. But in the traditional riparian rights, you really have a kind of common property system where each person decides for herself when, where, how, and how much to use and why to use it. And no one has any say in that, in this common pool resource. This is traditional riparian rights. This is traditional riparian rights. No one has, it's, it's, a, it's treated as a common property. All, each riparian owner owns it in common with all the other riparian owners. And no one has any right to tell me how to use my riparian rights unless I'm directly interfering with her use. In which case you go to court and it becomes an expensive and unpleasant 
process to resolve. But if you don't have, and if people go to, uh, rarely have a need to go to court, it works all right. There's no bureaucracy. There's no real expense to the system. The one thing you know for sure is non-riparians have no legal right to use the water. You can shut them down easily if, if that's a problem for you. Now, once you realize that that is a common property system, and those who are familiar with uh, environmental law will immediately think tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened in state after state as these intense droughts and prolonged droughts began to become common. So pretty and much the is, waterways have been de- became very degraded in these droughts. Right. Yeah. So, degraded to some extent, the quality problems were solved or at least improved by the Clean Water Act. But, but you still don't solve the quantity problem as everybody's taking it. And the idea of the tragedy of the commons is that Whoever grabs the resource gets 100% of the income generated by that bit of resource you've taken for yourself. But everybody shares the cost because everybody is diminished. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, should I take the one? I like to use as, a, as an analogy uh, catching lobsters. <laughs> okay, There's a body of lobsters out there in the ocean that you can capture and every time you capture a lobster, you're making money. And 100% of that money goes to you because you've got the lobster. But the loss, the diminishment, the diminution, if you will, of everybody's pool of lobsters available to catch is shared by everybody. So if you're making a cost-benefit analysis, is the benefit outweigh the cost? To me as an individual, clearly the benefit outweighs the cost. Now, I went on vacation in Nova Scotia. This is about 20 years ago. This is why I like to use lobster as an example. And I, and I was looking forward to it because I knew Nova Scotia was famous for its lobsters, having lobster dinner. And I actually found it difficult to find lobster on the menu. And so I finally asked the waitress, well, you know, why no lobster? She said, we caught them all. They're gone. We don't have them anymore. And, and so I went, actually uh, dragged my poor suffering family out to a lobster cannery to talk to the people there. What, what, what's the story? And literally they caught them all. And so the thing is you catch the small ones, too young to reproduce. Well, you can't sell them in the marketplace. Nobody wants to eat those, but you can sell them to the cannery and that's what they did. And why should you throw it back? And you know, I say, well, self-interest, if it's too small to reproduce, I really should throw it back. So we'll have lobsters next year too, but no, 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 no. Because if I throw it back, Someone else is going to grab it. I haven't done it. I've cut my income, but no one is going to have more lobsters next year because that, is, that lobster is probably still not going to get to reproduce because it's common property. I decide for myself what to use, what to take, mm-hmm. or what to throw back. And even if I want to be responsible, if I'm rational, I say to myself, well, there is no point to me throwing this back because you're not helping the lobsters and I am reducing my income. And you're not helping the river. <laughs> no, no, that's right. If you don't take the water. And so you see the tragedy. See, it isn't that the tragedy commons causes the destruction of the resource. It accelerates. Mm-hmm. As long as the resource is plentiful enough that everyone can get everything they want without really impairing the resource, fine. Why have any kind of regulation? But as soon as the resource begins to be in short supply relative to demand, the only rational thing to do is to grab as much as you can, as fast as you can, before someone else grabs it. And so it accelerates the destruction. And that's exactly what was going on here 
with the water resources in the eastern part of the United States. And so they, they abandon a common property system, which is individual decision making, what I call a public property system, that is collective decision making. What state after state has done, and now I think, as I say, it's 19 or 20 out of the 33 in the East, has enacted what's called a regulated riparian system, which says you want to take water, usually there's a threshold, above a certain quantity per day or per week or per month. Uh, You want to take water out of a water source, you need a permit from a state agency that administers this system. Kind of moving from individual action individual desire, individual use to actually stay regulated with oversight for how the water is used. So kind of actually well, papering the water rights in a way. State allocated water. And it's mm-hmm. and, and and there are differences between this system and what you find in the, well, let me talk about the differences between this system and traditional riparian rights first. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I'll talk about how it's different appropriative rights as well. Basic well, the most obvious difference I've already mentioned is you no longer have complete freedom of action. You must get a permit. Now, what's important about this permit is, first, it's the criterion of decision is reasonableness. Mm-hmm. That is, a, an agency of the state gives you or, or denies you or gives you a less generous permit than you applied for and so on. Various conditions can be attached based upon the agency's evaluation of the reasonableness of your use. And so in that sense, it, it harkens back to old riparian rights, which is reasonable use, as opposed to the beneficial use of appropriative rights. Now, the reasonableness is decided basically by the same criteria, which includes not only economic value, but it includes social utility, it includes uh, ecosystem needs, it includes a you know, long shopping list, and I can probably find that in a minute. So the agency actually does like a wait. I mean, so can we, can we talk, talk this out for a second? So like if I am an East Coaster and mm-hmm. I'm wanting a water right, I, I, um, for what it sounds like you're saying, I approach a state appropriate state agency and I have to tell them what I want to do with the water, right? And then they assess whether or not that's reasonable and how much water I should get for that. Is, is that, that is kind correct. of how it works? That's okay. right. Okay. That's right. Your basic, they're taking into account the best technology available for the use you want to make. You know, are you asking for too much given what you say you're going to do with it and so on and so forth, as well as taking into account the other permits they've given, taking into account foreseeable future needs from the water source and so on, deciding ultimately what is a reasonable share for this particular person to make. Now, another important difference is they can give a permit to anyone. You no longer have to be a riparian landowner to get a permit to use water. There's no inherent reason why the most valuable, socially valuable, or economically valuable use of water should always be adjacent to a river or a lake. I mean, it often will be, but it doesn't have to be. And, and they can give water permits to anyone in the state. Now, the second important difference, which I think perhaps is implicit, is that this is decided administratively in advance. Instead of making your investment and placing your bet that there'll be water available and that a judge will think your use is reasonable, you've got an answer. You've got the permit that says your use is reasonable. Now, these are time-limited permits. That's another fundamental difference from appropriative rights Hmm. because these permits expire. Now, different states 
use different periods of time. Common lengths of permits are 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. Although Maryland, they uh, expire every year and have to be renewed. But you know what happens when they expire every year is it's pro forma renewal. Agencies likely say, oh, we did this last year. We don't have to give it a close look. We know what the answer is and just roll it over. But when it's 20 years, like the, the longest one, yeah, there's a fair chance that the agency is going to say, well, let's see what's changed in the last 20 years. You know, is the mm -hmm. technology better? Should you, should you be using less water? Has the river basin developed so that there are other needs that are important that have to be taken into account so that you're not guaranteed a complete renewal? In theory, you could be denied a renewal altogether. That rarely happens, if ever. I'm, I've not seen a case where it was ever denied renewal completely. But when but they do, is there any other opportunity for the agency to review the permit prior to the expiration of the 20 years? You know, like, yes. If, okay. Mm -hmm. if, there, if there is a declared water emergency. Oh. Mm hmm. You see, in which case they can then decide administratively who should cut back how much. Uh, again, a severe drought. Obviously, if you're making a permit for 20 years, you're projecting what you think the typical availability of water will be 20 years from now or, or even five years from now. And, and of course, may not be what you project. And so the agency does have the right in some states, they have to have published plans of what they're going to do if there's a water emergency, so you can plan on that basis. Other cases, they don't have plans in advance, but they have the power to suspend or at least a mod or modify a permit only to respond to a declared water emergency. And sometimes it's not the agency that decides there's a water emergency. Sometimes it's the governor or the legislature decides. And, and they, of course, are not likely to decide there's a water I don't think the agency would either, but they're not likely to decide there's a water emergency for trivial shortfalls. Let's put it that way. And maybe making light of it. I mean, it has to be a true water emergency before this is likely to happen. So you're guaranteed for the life of the permit that your use is reasonable and that the agency will protect it. If someone else comes along and applies, in this sense, there's a mo modest amount of temporal priority. Someone else comes along and applies for a permit, say five years into your 20-year permit, and, and their permit would interfere with yours, the agency is going to say, no, you can't have that much. Because until this other permit expires, we've got to protect it. And so in that sense, you've got a much more secure water right never absolutely secure, but it's not absolutely secure in the West either. But that's almost like introducing an element of prior appropriation where you the first come exactly. in the door to get the permitted from the, the permit from the agency is essentially secured their water right. For the time period of the permit. For the time tiny. period of the permit. But wait, you're wait, saying wait. that they, well, wait a second. So you're saying they're very rarely denied. And but they're they very are often modified. They are often modified. And do they ever modify it to account for and allow for additional water rights? I mean, they could modify oh, yeah. and account for, oh, really? So they'll, they might shrink you down so they can provide for additional uses on the river? Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. And then, um, and then if they allow for those additional uses, everyone shares those uses equally. There's no priority between permit holders once the permit's issued. Well, again, if it's a shortfall sufficient enough to invoke a water emergency, then the agency has discretion to decide who needs to cut back and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. hmm. For example, 
in New Jersey, which is one of the, uh, had a prior uh, regulated riparian system for about 60 years. One of the first things they do when there's a drought is they order car washes to close down, to close down, period, because they use a lot of water and the, the agency and, and the political branches back this up. Now, obviously, the car wash owners are, you know, calling the governor and protesting and back it up. They say, well, they, you know, they use a lot of water and it's really not that important given what else would have to be shorted on water if the car washes continued in business. You see, so, I mean, it can be in a water emergency, the agency can go back and say, look, this use, which normally is reasonable at this point in time is not. You have to stop Hmm. That's interesting because, like in the in that case, in the prior appropriation system, if you were a car wash that had purchased a senior water right, you know that yeah. was very protected by priority, you could continue to use your car wash all we wanted, you know. Whereas an irrigator might have to go without water. It's just so interesting because I think when when I teach this to the students, one of the big questions that always comes up is kind of like. Well, when I teach prior appropriation, you know, how do we account for changing priorities, you know, and the yeah. prior appropriation system is just not really built for that. Like you no, just have not. to purchase the water right that makes the most sense and is most stable that you can afford and then move it to the use you need if that's allowed by law. Well, know? yeah, if, if changing the time or place or manner of use doesn't adversely affect other even junior water rights, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Here, here we have a flexibility, a certain amount of flexibilities built into the system, which is what riparian rights is all about. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's kind of cool. And and I'm and I'm assuming each state gets to set their priority list for kind of like what is considered to be like an emergency and what are the uses that they would curtail in emergencies. Well, that's true. Some states, the legislature gives you a ranked list of priorities for uses. Most do not mostly vest a lot of discretion in administrative agency. Uh And so, you know, ultimately the administrative agency is the one that has to decide what uses are reasonable and which uses are not reasonable under the circumstances. Um, And how does this work out in reality? Like, I mean, you know, because I think from the theory, it's one thing to kind of talk about these things, but if I'm a water user on the East Coast, and I have these, you know, regulated riparian permits for water use. And, you know, it's for a set period of time for, you know, mm-hmm. a set reasonable amount of water. I mean, does this work? Do, do people get into conflict with one another? Like, how, how is this actually functioning in terms of a practical doctrine for reducing conflict? Well, most of the time, there's not, even during drought, there's not a lot of conflict. There's not a lot of legal conflict. I mean, they can't go to court because the court is not going to second guess the agency. There is, of course, lobbying at the agency and there's lobbying with the legislature or the governor to try to get them involved, as you might expect. Mostly legislature and and the governor choose not to get involved. The downside of taking sides in one of these controversies, you want to call it that, about who gets to use water in drought is generally more severe than allowing the agency to, as long as the agency is not going off the deep end in terms of its decisions, and the downside of interfering is much more serious than the the gain, political gain from trying to champion this particular use as against other, and again, car washes, you know, I mean, some people like to take their car to the car wash once a week, others once a year, some never, you know, and so, you know, who, in terms of the public at large, the voters, if you will, you know, how many votes you're going to lose by shutting down car washes? 
So then is the work of a water attorney on the East Coast more, you know, because a lot of our work is honestly a litigation about competing uses for water, you know, so what is the work of a water attorney on the East Coast? Is it just navigating this administrative process that the state does to issue the permits or like, what are you physically doing as kind of an attorney in this doctrine? Well, you certainly can help with the uh, navigate through the agency. Uh, you can, and, and there are occasional, not too many, but occasional loss, legal challenges, judicial review of agency, agency decisions. But you, those usually don't go very far, but you do see some of that in the courts. You see a lot of attempting to negotiate, particularly when you're not talking about water emergencies, you're just talking run of the mill. I, I, I really need to, I really, I want to start a brewery. I get, get my hands on some water, but there's not a lot of water available. You might actually try to uh, negotiate a deal with some of the existing water users to make some water available. Like brokerages uh, between water rates. Almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, there's not a lot of litigation. Hmm. Interesting. Sounds like a lot of political policy making, though. Sounds like there's a lot oh, yeah. more of the energy spent on the policy side, kind of defining that priority list. That's right. Interesting. So, what do you do? You think that, like, because one thing I find interesting here in the West is that water and Western history are just so intricately related. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they are mm-hmm. one and the same. And mm-hmm. my favorite—it's part of one of my favorite jobs of actually, like, you know, teaching—is that you know, it is kind of unraveling that history and talking about how, you know, the Civil War is connected to Western expansion, which is connected to, you know, the development of X, Y, and Z. And just, it just is kind of this big, long American story. And I do think that, especially as we tend to see drought here more, unfortunately, I think the general comment is always that Western water law is broken, um, which I disagree (laughs) with. Um, But I do think people have a cognizance about a legal doctrine for water. I mean, um, that's a very broad yeah. statement because a lot of people have no concept of it at all, especially, you know, but like, I do think there's kind of more of a narrative of the fact that like water rights are a thing and you fight over them on the East coast. Is that part of the discourse at all? I mean, like, does the legal doctrine at all inform kind of public understanding of the water or like, I'm just kind of curious if there's a similar connection kind of between the legal doctrine and forming a discussion at the public level or an understanding at the public level, or is it kind of just so meta that it's just kind of more with the people who it relates to? First, I've noticed out West, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about this, that there is a growing conflict between uh, those who view water as a water right, a private property right that I, you know, fight to the death for, uh, Versus a friend of mine who uh, was a law professor who became assistant attorney general of Colorado for water rights some years back. And I was talking with him, how are you going to do this job? Oh, four years. And uh, okay, took a leave from his school. Uh, And then a couple of years later, I saw him at the Association of American Law Schools annual meeting wearing a badge from his law school. I said, you left uh, the attorney general's office uh, sooner than you think. He says, well, you know, no one ever threatened my life over a law review article. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've got that crowd, but you've also got a growing number of people who who view water as a recreational resource, as an ecosystem resource, who don't like appropriative rights, who talk about the public trust doctrine and various other legal theories to try and get around appropriative rights. So it's not quite as uncontested in the West as, as you might think. 
Uh, on the other hand, we've never kind of had that, this is my property idea, until some economists mostly, and, and lawyers from the West tried to introduce those ideas in the East. And uh, mostly it's people who have big dams who want to claim all this water in the dam, behind the dam belongs to me. Well, that's never been the law in the East. I'm not quite sure it's the law in the West either. They're, they're holding it, they're storing it, but it's, it, at least in the Eastern point of view, they have only a right to a reasonable use of it. it ultimately, it belongs to everybody who has riparian land along the river. Or as you're talking about regulated riparianism, ultimately it belongs to the public, which, by the way, is the law in almost all of the uh, Western states. There's mm -hmm. either a statute or a constitutional provision says the law. One way or another, the water belongs to the public. For usually it says for the beneficial use of appropriators, but and we don't have that last part in the East, the beneficial use of anybody. And so, you know, there have been economists like to push this idea that uh, water should be treated just like any other commodity. But as I like to point out, water is not any other commodity. It's got a number of features, even in the West, that you don't find with even other liquid commodities. You know, the thing about oil or gas is I can... If I have an oil well and I pump it out of the ground, I take possession of it and it's used once and that's the end of it. Once it's burned for this purpose or that purpose, it's gone. Uh -huh. On the other hand, I take water out of a well or I take water out of a river and I use it. I have to get rid of it. In consuming it, it doesn't disappear. It actually comes out. I mean, think about you're washing dishes by hand or by dishwasher, doesn't matter. That water goes somewhere when you're done washing dishes and it doesn't, you know, you don't hold on to it. It's not yours. Even if you buy a bottle of water in the store, you drink it. It doesn't stay in your body. The corpus of water is never owned. I keep on saying, I, I always bring it back, like that wet water molecule is unownable. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it, uh -huh. it's because I because we have a lot of I have a lot of students, you know, and they're mostly second L's to, or second year two L's. And so, you know, they've kind of like just finished their first year property law classes. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to be like, that's a nice that's that's informative. But what we're doing is just a little bit different. And, and this concept of like a usufructory right of a right mm -hmm. of, of a right of use that is bestowed with conditional public restrictions, you know, one being the public owns it, but two setting priorities, you know, whether that be mm -hmm. on the East Coast through your reasonable use analysis or whether that be on the West Coast through our, you know, beneficial use criteria, you know, it's just, it's a different concept of, of what a property That's right, right or personal right. property right is. And it's, it's hard to explain to folks because it is, it's, it's in its own box, you know, but yeah. it comes back to this point that like, it's unlike other resources. That is correct. And it's and it's also unlike other resources in that it's utterly essential to life, all forms of life. All forms. Yeah, and, exactly. And so you, you can't, any reasonable legal system cannot deny it to people or for that matter, plants and animals, utterly deny it if they can't pay for it, which is what you can do with oil. I mean, yeah. whether you think whether you think oil is so essential uh nowadays we're questioning it because of climate disruption but not so long ago we think you know you have to be able to drive your car but no one thought well but you know you can't you can't you don't have to give people free gasoline if they can't afford to pay for it but you do have to give people free water if they can't afford to pay I, I like to describe it as it's ultimately inelastic you know, yeah. like we can have times of abundance or times of scarcity, but at the end of the day, water is ultimately inelastic because there is no substitute. 
You know, That's like if right. we mismanage our oil, I ride my bike. You know, if we mismanage mm-hmm. our water, we don't eat. <laughs> that, and we don't drink. And you yeah, and we don't drink. We don't. And from lots of nothing. food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's definitely its own, it's its own unique creature of both law and, you know, physicality. It's really an interesting field to work in from that perspective. I like to quote uh, this quote, which you might opportunity to use. Millions of people have died from lack of water. No one has died from lack of love. Oh. <laughs> yes. I like that. I think that's both uplifting and depressing at the same time, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I like but that. It's, that. That's the point. I mean, water is different, despite what the economists want to claim. It is different from other things that might be commodities. And we, we need to keep that in mind. You know, any reasonable, rational legal system. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And that's what makes this the doctrine so interesting, you know, and this is why I'm so curious just about riparian rights, because honestly, it, it, it's quite divergent from the principles of the prior appropriation doctrine. Oh, yes. it's quite, it's, it, I mean, that's where the majority of our population lies. And that's kind of oh, why yes. I was curious about, you know, if presence of this kind of more reasonable use, I would call it a more subtle doctrine. Yes. You know, if that spurs the imagination in the same way that prior pro- appropriation does, because I do think one of the things that we need to think about mm-hmm. as we face the challenges of the future it is this question of imagination. It, we really are going to have to think about using our water differently. And, and that's going to, in the West, you know, require mm-hmm. some rethinking of how we apply the prior appropriation doctrine. I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there's a lot of really yeah. good collaborative and contractual you know, solutions to working inside the prior appropriation doctrine. But it's helpful to have examples of saying, but it worked here. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like if you have a you know reasonable use or water emergency you know, structure that cuts off car washes, because that's not an immediate public need, it's nice to say, how could we do that under our system? You know what I mean? Like, what, yeah, what could yeah. we do to kind of bootstrap that on the prior appropriation system? Yeah. Well, I would suggest that you might enjoy reading chapter eight of Waters and Water Rights. I, I assume you're familiar with that mm-hmm. book, which I, I wrote about half of that. <laughs> I wrote all of chapter eight, but I wrote about half of Waters and Water Rights, but that's another story. I'm also recently brought out through Ed, Edward Elger Publishers, which is a European publisher, a, a volume called Encyclopedia of Water Law. You might take a look at. But to give you a, a short opportunity to dig into the differences between uh, water law in the East and the West of the United States, take a look at Chapter 8 of Waters and Water Rights, which goes into, um, basically, it's about the dual systems. That is, the states that recognize both appropriative rights and riparian rights. Mm-hmm. And, like California? Like California, Oklahoma, Nebraska, all, those three recognize in a strong way, some others in a weaker way. But in order to understand those dual systems, you, the chapter has to give you some understanding of how we ended up with what we ended up with in the East and the West. And so I don't go into regulated riparianism in chapter eight, but I do go into riparian rights and appropriative rights, how they can mesh together or not, as the case may be. And I think Mostly they don't mesh together in the dual states. And also why the attempt to introduce appropriative rights in an Eastern state, namely Mississippi, failed. Hmm. Failed utterly. 
and I think it would fail in any eastern state. Uh, and the basic reason is you have to grandfather in all existing rip, uh, riparian rights, and it's between existing riparian rights. Uh, you're still going to use reasonable use because if you don't have the information that would allow you to piggyback on them as some sort of airsats temporal priority, no one kept any records, no reason to. Uh, and so it utterly, and, and so much water would be grandfathered that you'd gain almost nothing by saying, well, from, from January 1st, 2022, any new use needs an appropriation because most water is already taken. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a totally different way of cutting the pie. The, the, the pie is already cut both in the east and the west <laughs> well that's right that's right and yeah. if you want to you want to go into traditional riparian rights mm-hmm. uh that's chapter seven and regulated riparianism is chapter nine but chapter eight is one i think you would probably find most interesting yeah so then joe you know close up here you yeah. know what do you think you know having now like worked in this worked in this doctrine and honestly mm-hmm. developed a lot of kind of the modern concepts of this doctrine, you know, if you were to leave with kind of like a parting thought on what, because one of the things I'm interested about in having these discussions and having this podcast is like, what are the catalysts for change and how do we actually get that to happen? And so, you know, even in your, your career, you've kind of, you, it seems like you're kind of in the initial parts of your career were kind of at that you know, end stage of the transition from like a, you know, straight reasonable use doctrine to kind of almost more re- regulated riparian stuff, riparianism. Yeah. yeah. What were the forces that allowed that to happen? You know, if we're kind of thinking about like how we, you know, change doctrines and, and evolve our thinking, what are some of your reflections on kind of how that regulated riparianism was allowed to develop and what are some things that we can maybe duplicate in other arenas? I think, uh, the actual in almost every state, uh, there's one or two where it could have been done by far-sighted statesmen who were looking ahead before there was a problem. But almost every one of them, it was put together sometimes rather crudely and rapidly, otherwise, other times more carefully drawing on existing models, including the regulated riparian model water code, which I drafted on behalf of the Association of uh, American Society of Civil Engineers, ASC. And that's become Uh, a fairly influential document. No state has enacted it outright, but lots of states have used it as sort of a template from which they can make changes and work to their local condition. But almost all of these states, it's because there's been a severe crisis that finally gets everybody on board. Without a severe crisis, lots of water users are gonna say, why do I wanna pay for a permit? Why do I have to go through all this bureaucracy? You know, I have to get all these clean water permits already and that's a headache. Why do I want another? It's, it's when there is a severe enough crisis that most people, even most farmers, and farmers, by the way, they're most resistant to this idea of needing a permit mm-hmm. um, in general anyway. Even most farmers will say, look, I need, I need to have some certainty as that once, once I start investing in equipment to irrigate or whatever, or to make beer or whatever, you know, make steel, whatever I'm using the water for, and I'm, I have to have some reasonable amount of certainty that I'll actually be able to use the water when I most need it, which is when there's a severe drought. It's when people begin to focus on that aspect that they begin to say, all right, well, maybe permits are not so bad. Hmm. 
because they give me that reasonable certainty. Now, there is the possibility of a water emergency, and that's why some states require a list of priorities. Lots do not. Lots just leave it up to the agency to decide what's most important in this year's drought as opposed to last year's drought, because you know the particular circumstances of the drought are going to be different from year to year. But some enact a schedule of priorities in case of water emergencies. Others will enact more or less strict criteria. Lots do not about mm-hmm. what is a water emergency. Uh, some states require the administering agency to have a published plan in case of a water emergency and then need to point to a specific reason for deviating from the plan, which allows greater planning. Most do not. Most simply give the discretion to the administrative agency. And, and th- these systems have been around, depending what state you're in, they've been around from 10 years to, well, in Maryland, 90 years. And people seem to think they work pretty well on the whole. At least it hasn't been a political hot potato. But I had to take that initial push for industrialization and drought to get there, though. So you, you've kind of seen your mind, you know, because because I think that I think we're here realistically, honestly. I mean, like this this summer, the amount of acceleration of discussion that's happened this summer in the West that the drought mm-hmm. has prompted is amazing. Like mm-hmm. the, the pace of the discussion has increased on five or six key topics that have been kind of, I wouldn't say floundering by any means, but kind of just like marinating for like years. And all of a sudden, yeah. everybody want to talk wants to talk about agricultural efficiencies. Everybody wants to talk about resiliency planning. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to talk about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I actually have a conversation with several of my clients about how do we not let a good crisis go to waste? <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. And, and in the East, the way you don't let it go to waste is you enact a regulator riparian law. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I love it. That's, that's perfect. That's right. <laughs> well, Joe, this has been fantastic. And I've definitely learned a lot. And I really appreciate your expertise and your time here. I think this will be a good kind of addition to our discussion because it's not you know we just are we're primarily kind of western focused and you know i think yeah. that it's important to keep an eye on you know what the other half of the country is doing as well all right well I'm, uh you're welcome i'm glad i uh, had the opportunity to talk with you okay. all right well we'll have you back on at some point in time all right thank you Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.